I do want to take this time to say good morning to those of you joining us online. Thank you for being with us this morning, wherever you might be. We know that perhaps for some weather has kept you from coming, for others perhaps it's weather, for others perhaps distance of travel, but thank you that you are with us this morning. Thank you that wherever you might be, we know that you're joining us as we open God's word together and as we study and we ask for your hand of favor, ask for God's hand of favor upon our time and study this morning. So good morning. You know, last week I had the privilege of being on the other side of the camera. I got to watch you as you were worshiping and hear Brian teaching, and I got to use the, the church app and take notes, and so I encourage you to get it on your phone. It's a great way to take sermon notes and to, to use it and share with one another during the week. And on a very personal note, but a side note, thank you for praying for us as we were away for, for myself a week, for Carol about a week and a half as we got to meet our, our new grandbaby. And what a delight it was to be there in those first days of life to help our daughter and son-in-law as they're trying to get their feet under them and becoming parents. And uh, Carol and I are experiencing what many of you as grandparents know, and that is our arms are experiencing baby hunger. We just want to grab that little girl one more time. But we're thankful for the opportunity to, to be able to go, and now for the opportunity to be back. Eric Hoffer was a philosopher and thinker in the 20th century. He was a teacher at UC Berkeley and the author of several books. And he reflected on the modern realities of life and what brings about social change. He himself was not a Christian believer. In fact, he never had a family of his own, but he offered insight into the modern psyche of Americans. In one of his works, he reflects on the meaning of work and the tendency to make oneself busy so as to seem important or seen as accomplishing something. And he writes in part, the feeling of being hurried is not usually the result of living a full life and having no time. It is, on the contrary, born of a vague fear that we are wasting our life. When we do not do the one thing we ought to do, we have no time for anything else. We are the busiest people in the world. Now, Hoffer picked up on something important. These are not his words, these are mine. But he picked up on the importance of do not confuse activity with achievement. The Lord Jesus modeled for us that important truth all throughout his ministry. If we think about it, there was no one who had more to accomplish in the history of the world in the amount of time that he had than the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet at no point in his earthly ministry do we see him in a hurry. Though he came to be the redeemer and fulfiller of the plan of God, he was never in such a hurry as to not be able to stop and tend to those that society might otherwise overlook. And so in our time in the Word this morning, we're going to consider two shorter passages that are not side by side in the Gospel of Matthew, but show the nature of Jesus as he is on his way to Jerusalem. In our first short passage, we'll see that Jesus takes his disciples away from the gathering crowds that are on their way to Jerusalem, he takes them aside to give them a time of private teaching. And the second short passage, he stops in the midst of the crowds to tend to the needs of two men, down and desperate because of blindness. Jesus does not confuse activity with achievement. Moving at the direction of the Father, he tended to what was truly important during the will of his father in accomplishing the plan of redemption for the people of God. 
And may we who have gathered here this morning have ears to hear as we study these two passages this morning. And so I invite you to stand for the reading of our word this morning. As I read the two passages, we will consider Matthew 20, verses 17 to 19, and then Matthew 20, verses 29 to 34. And the word of God given to us by the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And then dropping down to verse 29. And as they went out to Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the word of the Lord, and he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father, what a privilege we have to sit under the authority of your word. What a joy we have that your spirit reigns and works among us, so that the word would be open to us. We ask that the Spirit would open us to the Word, that our hearts would be tender and receptive to what you are teaching us through your Word this morning. We pray that you would banish distracting thoughts, the worries of our hearts, the anxieties of our minds that would cause us now to just be able to focus on you for who you are and hear from your Word as you teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now you'll notice that I jumped over a pretty significant portion of scripture, Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28, and it's such an important passage that I didn't want to try to tack it on to what comes before and after, because it's one of the foundational passages really in the gospel of Matthew, and so we'll address it separately next week, and might even go beyond that. So I thought I'll take the, the passages before and after and put them together to show what we can learn from Jesus, who is not only the son of man, but he is the son of David. So far in Matthew 20, we've seen that Jesus has given us a wonderful parable showing that our God is a great and generous God, giving salvation and blessing to those who do not deserve it, whether in the first hour or in the eleventh hour. We've seen that in his freedom, he lavishes his love and grace on those to whom he chooses to lavish it, and he is to be forever praised because of his generosity. And therefore, our, our goal and our job really is to rejoice with those he blesses and to share the blessings that we have received with others. For all that we have in the gospel is because of his grace. As we've sung just a few moments ago, all we have is Christ. And all that we have is in Christ. And all that we do is in Christ. And he is our all and all. Therefore, he's worthy of eternal praise. For in Christ, you see, we never get what we truly deserve but we get the mercy and kindness and grace of God. 
On our first passage that we'll look at this morning, we will see that the grace and mercy and blessings of God are given to those who repent and believe in what the Son of God did, what the Son of Man did in his life, sufferings, death, and resurrection. And if God so freely displays his grace through the sufferings of his Son, then we have no grounds to complain if God shows mercy to others, shows grace to others. Our only response is to praise him and rejoice with those who are in Christ. In our second passage, we'll see an example of the messianic power where Jesus shows us what the Messiah looks like. We'll see him as the son of David who's able to give sight to the blind, both to the physically blind and the spiritually blind, for he is merciful and powerful and worthy of our joyful praise and faithful obedience. And so with that, let's get into our study this morning. I encourage you to turn to your sermon outline or to the app, our church app, where you can take notes on the sermon as we begin today. Our first major point being the Son of Man and the Passion. The Son of Man and the Passion. Verse 17 says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, I'm going to stop there. We're going to summarize where we're at. Jesus and his apostolic band continue on their way. By this time, it seems that they have gone south from where they crossed over by around Galilee, Sea of Galilee, crossed over into Perea, what we know as the land of Jordan. They've come along the eastern side of the Jordan River, going south, and just north of the Dead Sea around Jericho, they cross back over. And now it seems like they are in the land of Judea. And we are told that they are going up to Jerusalem. And this is interesting because this is a common way that we see it in the scriptures. People are always said to be going up to Jerusalem. No matter what direction they're coming from, they are going up to Jerusalem. So why is that? Well, I think there's at least two main reasons. One, Jerusalem was important to the plan of God. The prophets talked about the importance of Jerusalem as being the centerpiece where the temple and the, the, the sacrifice and the altar and the priesthood would all be located in Jerusalem. It was that area of prophetic importance. But secondly, it literally was an elevated city. And so if you wanted to get up to Jerusalem or go to Jerusalem, you had to go up because it was elevated over the surrounding areas. And we'll see that in due course as we look at where they are moving in our text this morning. So we see this particular trek that they are on, how they are actually going from Galilee in the north to Judea in the south, but they don't want to go through Samaria. And so they're going around and crossing, and along the way they're meeting several different groups of people, people who are asking them important things. The Pharisees want to know about marriage and divorce and what are the conditions for, for that. Young parents bring their children so that the children can be blessed by Jesus. A rich young ruler comes asking about what's the one thing he must do to save himself. And to each group, Jesus teaches the truth of God. Shows what the scriptures say on these important subjects. But now we'll see that he's going to pull the disciples apart for some important teaching. He needs to tell them. He wants them to understand what is going to happen in just a few weeks' time as they arrive in Jerusalem. Because as we move through the story now towards the end in Matthew, we're going to see a growing conflict between Jesus and the, the priests, the political and religious authorities of Jerusalem. The tension will continue to build. The conflict will grow. So as they're on their way, we're going to look at all that in detail. But I want to just take a step back because we're going to see an important term here that I want us to summarize what we've seen in Matthew. 
It's going to become more and more important. And it's the title that Jesus uses for himself more often than any other title, the Son of Man. And so we want to review what does the Son of Man mean when it's used in the Gospels? What does it mean when Jesus uses the term? And if you recall, way back when we first saw the term back in Matthew 8, and that was a while ago, that's why we're going to summarize, there were three primary meanings of this word, primary usages. The first being that the Son of Man is the humble forgiver of sinners. In this current situation, while Jesus is on the earth in the incarnation, he is the humble servant of the Lord who has come to forgive sinners. It's used this way at least six times in the gospel, according to Matthew. It's used a second way to refer to the suffering servant of the Lord. Jesus speaks often, as we have in our passage this morning, of his upcoming trials and sufferings and death and humiliation at the hands of the Jews and the Romans. And this use of the title Son of Man is one who will give his life as an atoning sacrifice for the redemption of God's people. And we'll look at that next week in Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28. This use, this term, or this usage happens at least 10 times, if you will, in the Gospel of Matthew. The third one is he is the future ruler over all. The great expectation on the part of God's people is that Jesus will return one day and set all things right and restore all things to righteousness, and in the new heavens and in the new earth, he will reign majestically in glory forever. And that is what we look forward to, and as we see, it was for this reason that he was crucified, but we will get to Matthew 26 to see that in detail. So with these three primary meanings of the Son of Man, the one that the passage we're going to look at this morning deals with the second one, the, the suffering servant. And we'll keep seeing the Son of Man as it's coming up, and we'll keep reminding ourselves of this important term that explains the gospel that is so precious to us. But as we get into our first point, the Son of Man and the Passion, we see Jesus prepares the disciples. And now we can finish reading verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over. So he's reminding his disciples of what awaits them in Jerusalem. And here he gives more detail and more explanation of what will happen than he has in previous predictions of his sufferings in Jerusalem. He says very clearly he'll be handed over to the Jews who will condemn him. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles who will mistreat him and eventually kill him. We're going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and the text tells us, but the disciples, they need to be taken aside because they're still not fully understanding what will happen when they get there. They're still not understanding fully who this Jesus is and what he has accomplished or what he will accomplish. They still have this idea that he is the Messiah who will be conquering. And so they still need to grow in their understanding of what Jesus came to do in his first coming, what will happen to be prepared as they get there. Because Jesus also knows that he is preparing this group of men to, if you will, take over for him after he dies and rises from the dead and ascends back to the Father. They're going to be the leaders of this movement. So they're on their way to Jerusalem for one of the three major feasts of the year. And they're not alone. And it helps us to understand the context when we realize they're not just this small group of people walking along a dusty trail. It was required that... Jewish men would go up to Jerusalem three times a year for the festivals. 
And so we need to understand that there are a lot of people that would have left Galilee, crossed over into Perea, are going south along the Jordan River, and are crossing back over. And so Jesus not only is encountering people, he's picking up people along the way. The groups are growing. They may not all travel together, but you can imagine the different bands of people as they're gathering along this road and as they're getting ready to go up to Jerusalem. And they're going to need to be reminded of who Jesus' true identity as well. But you can imagine the apostles, these 12. Jesus has been with them for three years, and he's been teaching about who he is and what he must do. And they're thinking in terms of victory, liberation from, from the oppression and taxation of the Romans. And that's what a lot of the people that are going up to the festival are seeking. And it would be easy for the, the disciples to be swept up into that victorious mood. And so Jesus needs to pull them apart, pull them aside, and instruct them and say, now listen then, I need to tell you the truth of what's going to happen when we get up to Jerusalem. And that would be hard to do as the throngs are growing, as groups are growing, to be able to stand up and, and try to preach openly and get them 12 to understand when there'd be some confusion all around them. There's wisdom here. After all, these 12 men had been with him for, right now, three, almost three years, and they're still not getting it? How are these crowds that are going up with these messianic expectations, how are they going to get it? And in fact, as we draw closer and closer, we know what we see that they didn't. They didn't understand for many of them who will cry Hosanna on a Sunday or just a few days later shout crucify. They didn't understand. And so Jesus pulls these 12 aside and he begins to instruct them what is going to happen when they get up to Jerusalem. And what will he instruct them on? Well, first he'll instruct them on the guilt of the Jews. Second part of verse 18 says, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. Now, two times the word delivered over is used here. In the original language, it's paradidomai, which means to hand over or to deliver. It has a legal sense. It can be used in the sense of handing someone over to custody. Someone that is arrested, they're handed into custody. But oftentimes, it can be used in the sense of betrayal. It's the same word that will be used of Judah several chapters from now, where he hands Jesus over to the Jewish authorities. He will betray the Son of Man. But the Son of Man will be handed over to the Jews. And the inclusion of both the chief priests and the scribes show that this was going to be official. This was going to include all the Jewish leaders in what we call the Sanhedrin, the governing council of the Jews. We know that's the case because we know the story. But if we stop right here, he's predicting to his disciples, listen, you think we're going to Jerusalem for a celebration, but all of the religious leaders will oppose me. And I will be handed over to them, and you need to be prepared for it. And they will condemn him to death. The Jewish leaders had the authority, according to their law, to be able to condemn people to death. But they were not allowed to carry out the death penalty. They were actually given special privileges under Roman authority that other provinces were not given. But one thing they could not do was execute someone that was guilty. They had to hand them over to the Romans. But only the Romans could decide whether they would put him to death or not. And think of that word, condemned. And now think of the good news of the gospel. Think of what Jesus did for us. As Brother Rob read so eloquently last week, let's read Romans 8.1 again. There is therefore now 
and no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the Son of Man was condemned for us, we will not be condemned before a holy God. I thought I'd get at least one hallelujah on that one. Y'all said it in your hearts. After we see the guilt of the Jews, we see the guilt of the Gentiles. Chapter 19 says, And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And so for the second time in this short passage, we see that the Son of Man is delivered over. He's handed over. He's betrayed. He did this so that he would be the Messiah, who in the words of Isaiah 53:3 would be despised and rejected. He was despised and rejected representatively by the whole world, Jew and Gentile, so that he could be the savior of the world, Jew and Gentile. He will be mocked in all ways possible, physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. You see, there was no tradition then, as we have, thankfully, in our court systems today, of treating prisoners with respect and dignity. The Romans knew no such law, no such control. They treated those who were accused and or convicted not as humans, but in ways that were inhumane. And we'll see this more and more as we draw closer to how Jesus was treated at his trials before the Jews, his trials before the Gentiles, eventually leading to his death. He was mocked. He was flogged, which was a severe form of whipping. Long leather straps bound together and a cat of nine tails covered with stone and metal that would be used to whip the open back of the prisoner to make a cruel weapon of punishment and torture. Being flogged was in and of itself cruel, painful. So the Jewish law put a limit to 40 lashes. Why the Jews were so serious about following it that when someone was being whipped, they would have people counting so that they would not get to 40. In fact, they would get to 39 and stop for fear of going over 40. You recall Paul and his testimony of how he was whipped several times, 40 lashes minus one. But the Romans didn't care about Jewish law. They weren't going to follow that, and oftentimes they would go far and beyond 40 lashes just because they despised the Jews, and they did not treat prisoners in a humane fashion. And the Son of Man will be crucified. This is the first time that the word crucifixion appears in the Gospel of Matthew. It's been referred to, it's been alluded to, it's the first time the word actually appears. Now this form of death was not Jewish. It was not even originally Roman. The Romans had learned it from the Phoenicians a few centuries before, and the Phoenicians themselves had learned it from the Greeks and the Persians. There was a, there was a form of crucifixion of hanging people on poles and trees and impaling them long before but the Romans became specialists at it. They were especially cruel and inhumane in how they carried it out. And crucifixion was reserved by the Romans for those they considered criminals, slaves, the despised. So we see how Jesus was viewed by the Jews and the Gentiles. It was a death of a condemned, cursed, and rejected man. Jesus was rejected by men was the bearer of sin, was cursed by God, was punished under his divine wrath. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus bore our curse, he bore our shame, he bore our guilt, he bore our punishment, 
And if you are in the Son, you are free indeed from the punishment of God for sin. He was cursed so that we will not be cursed. And finally, Jesus promises he will be raised on the third day. And I find it interesting. He didn't say he will rise, but he will be raised. You see, one is active and one is passive. Jesus knows that as he obeys the Father perfectly in everything that he does, that the Father will not leave him in the ground to see corruption, the corruption of death, that the Father will raise him up on the third day. And we'll see more about all of this as we move forward in more details as we draw closer to the end of the Gospel of Matthew. But in all of these things, we remind ourselves of who Jesus is, Jesus the prophet. Jesus shows his prophetic powers in this prediction. He knows what is going to happen. He knows that the scriptures must be fulfilled. He is going to Jerusalem. He's preparing these men. He said, this is exactly what's going to happen. This is the plan of God. It must happen in this way. But even on another level, we're told that Jesus knows the hearts of men. And he knows what they will do to him. Because sinful man always rebels against holiness. And Jesus was the personification of holiness. But he came to redeem a people for God, a people, as we saw in Matthew chapter 1, that he will save from their sins. And so next week, as we look at Matthew chapter 20, from verse 20 to 28, we're going to see that, that Jesus is our sin offering. He's the propitiation. He's the ransom. He shows us what true service is all about. So if we look at the overall message in of what we've seen so far in Matthew 20, that he will not stay dead, that he will be raised again, we understand then why it was the message of the early church to preach the resurrection. Because it stands as the greatest proof that he was the Messiah, that he was the God-man, the Redeemer who came to bring man and God into a peaceful relationship. He'll be the Savior of the world because it is only through him that anyone can be saved, whether Jew or Gentile. And the empty tomb then in Jerusalem still speaks today to the victory of Jesus over sin, the victory of Jesus over death, the victory of Jesus over the devil, the victory of Jesus over the rebellion of sinful men. What a great gospel we have to declare, my friends. What a great victory that we have. So if we think about the overall message now of what we've seen in, in, in Matthew 20. If this, and, and just a few verses, we've just been given this teaching, but if this is the price that was to be paid, that the Son of Man was willing to go to Jerusalem to pay and to do it on our behalf, how can we begrudge the generosity and mercy of God towards another person? You see, that was the verse that we just saw. Or do you begrudge me because of my generosity? And he goes on and shows, well, this is what I'm going to do to show God's generosity and lavish love. The first will be last and the last will be first because Jesus, who was first, who deserves to be first overall, lowered himself, condescended to be the servant so that we might be raised to the place of God. We who are the lowly, the needy, the lost are brought into a position of glory before the throne of God because of Christ, because the Son of Man has triumphed in his passion. Now as we drop down to verse 29, we see the Son of David and compassion. 
verse 29 begins, and as they went out of Jericho. So if they're now in the area of Jericho, then this means they've already crossed back over, as I've said, into the land of Judea. If you will, they're in Israel now. They've crossed over from the other side. And the events that are happening here are happening on the western side of the Jordan River. And as you've already seen, this was the route that they would take. But again, keep in mind, there were a lot more people on this road. There was a lot more people. And we're going to see that, that these crowds become more and more part of the story as we move forward to what happens in the cross at Calvary. But as they went out of Jericho, we are told, a great crowd followed him. That's how Matthew renders it. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. Now, why do I belabor that point? Well, Matthew says they went out of Jericho. Mark chapter 10 and Luke 18 say as they drew near to Jericho. Do we just close our Bibles and go home and say the Bible is full of hopeless contradictions? Nah. There's always a reason. The more we study, God's word hangs together. The more we learn, the more we discover, the more we look at the historical background, the things that we dig up in archaeology, what we discover and what's happening in Jerusalem and surrounding areas, there's a very simple explanation. And that is, there were two Jerichos. There was the historic Jericho, which was where Joshua and the Israelites defeated the city, marched around it, the walls were pulled down, but as you read carefully, it was rebuilt. And there were people that were still inhabiting there and living there. But by the time of Jesus, there was a second Jericho that was built under the Hasmoneans, the Herods, if you will, and that was located about a mile from the ancient city with the same name. And this modern Jericho was built by an oasis that was about 15 miles from Jerusalem. So the gospel writers, when we put them all together, we see that they're harmonious. This story simply happened as they left one Jericho and were on their way to the other. It happened in that same area. And as they do, they find two men who are desperate and blind. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. Now again, we could dive down into what I love to do, which is apologetics, which we show where the scriptures speak truthfully, whether two men or whether just one. Mark and Luke mention one blind man, and, they, and Mark gives him the name Bartimaeus. But of course, there's no problem because Mark and Luke did not say there was only one man. And often in the Gospels, there is one that is often seen as speaking for the group. Often Peter is quoted when Peter is representing the apostles. So the main character here would have been this one man speaking, but there were two there. There's no reason to get in a huff and say this is some type of apparent contradiction that can't be resolved. Moreover, Matthew has already given us an account earlier of two blind men who were healed. And that's where we first saw that Jesus heals the blind. And I think what Matthew is doing here is quite clever. We know that Jesus performed far more miracles than we see in the Gospels. We know that he gave far more teachings than we see in the Gospels. John ends his Gospel by saying if everything that was recorded about Jesus was put into books, it would be quite a library to just paraphrase what he said. So each of these Gospel writers, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, selects the ones that they want to emphasize because they have a target audience in mind. And Matthew, as you know, has a Jewish audience in mind. 
So he takes two accounts of two blind men that are being healed because he knows that under the Jewish law, you need to settle matters under the testimony of two or three witnesses. So having two groups of two blind men is testifying that Jesus heals the blind. Jesus is capable of everything. There's no throwaway words in the Gospels. There's no throwaway words in the Bible. Everyone is there because God wants it to be there. It's just up to us to study and look and find and search and understand. So here they are. They had this miracle. Uh, they're, they're getting ready to perform a miracle. They encounter these men. They're in Jericho, and there is quite a journey before them. Jericho is located near the Dead Sea. The elevation of Jericho is approximately 900 feet below sea level. We know the Dead Sea is the lowest point on earth. I've had the privilege of being there several times, and you always go up out of the Dead Sea Basin. Jericho would be a little bit up out of the Dead Sea Basin, but it's still 900 feet below sea level. Jerusalem was about 2,600 feet above sea level. So we can all do the math and say, wow, there was a trek of 3,500 feet. And they're going to cover that 3,500 feet of elevation in 15 miles. 15 miles from Jericho up to Jerusalem. Now, my wife and I like to go on hikes, and we look at the All Trails app, and we figure out, you know, what trail we should take. And when you get an elevation on a hill that's a couple of hundred feet, you're in for a pretty good trek. Well, this was 3,500 feet, so these were, these were rigorous people, pilgrims, as they're on their way to Jerusalem and taking their time to steadily march up to Jerusalem. But as they're going out, as they're going out of one Jericho into another, they encounter desperate and blind men who are sitting by the roadside. And when, and when these men heard that Jesus was passing by. Now think about if, if you ever had someone give a testimony who was blind. They say that their other senses are heightened. Their sense of smell, their sense of hearing, their sense of tactile touch are all heightened because that's how they interact with their environment. So imagine these men now as they're sitting alongside the road. Now this would have been a strategic place for them to be. After all, they need to beg. There was not something they could do to gain their, their, their livelihood. So they sit along the road to beg. And now there's all these crowds going by, going up to the feast. So this is a great time for them to go by. And you can imagine they're hearing all that's going on. And they hear that Jesus is passing by. Now just stop and put yourself in their situation. They're desperate. They're blind. They can't work. They're at the mercy of anyone who will throw them a couple of coins. You can imagine the abuse that they might receive. You can imagine the comments that they overhear. And they're hearing the crowd talking. Oh, we're on our way up to the feast. Oh, we're going to have to go to the temple and we're going to have to get our sacrifice and we're going to have to give our offering. Oh, how much longer do we have to go? And then they hear that Jesus is in the group. Jesus. They've heard about Jesus. They've heard that he can do things. They've heard about miracles. This might be their only chance to be healed. What would you do in that situation? Would you just sit there and hope that somebody pays you some attention? No, I think you'd be like these two blind men. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. You can almost hear their voices rising above the din of the crowd. They're desperate. They're crying out to the Lord. I like this example because I find myself often like the blind man 
I don't always see things. I don't always understand things. I need the Lord, and I'm willing to cry out. Are you willing to cry out when you're in need? It's good and right to cry out to Jesus when you're in need because he's the one who can actually do something about your situation. So they're crying out, but we've seen this song before as well. They're rebuked but determined. So the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. You see, these two men, they recognize this is their hour of need. This is their hour of opportunity. They recognize that Jesus is powerful. They recognize their weakness. This is their only help. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And in Matthew, when these two words come together, Lord and son of David, it refers to healing and power. They're asking for healing power. So people are telling him to shush, be quiet. But he they want to silence him, but they continue to cry out. But notice Jesus doesn't tell them to be quiet. Have you noticed so far in the Gospels, somebody says, well, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're the Holy One. And Jesus says, be quiet. Don't tell anyone right now. Because there was not an understanding yet of what he was as the Son of God, as the Messiah, what he would do when he'd go to Jerusalem. But now he's on his way to Jerusalem. So he doesn't silence them. He just responds in mercy and contrasts that with the crowd. Remember when the parents bring children to Jesus and what was the response of the disciples? Get those children away from here. The Messiah has more important things to do than interact with these children. Jesus says, wait. Wait. Bring the children to me. For it is those who become like children and childlike faith who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing happening here. That these desperate men, these unimportant people, are crying out to the Messiah, and the crowds are saying, hey, we, we want to just get up to the festival, or we want to hear what Jesus says. Just get these unimportant people out of here. But they cry out, and they keep crying out, have mercy on me, have mercy on us, son of David. And to their pleas, we see the response that Jesus is compassionate and divine. And notice, and stopping, Jesus called to them. There's these groups of people on the way, on the path, they're all anxious to get up to Jerusalem, to get to the jockeying position, to buy the animals, to, to change the coins. But Jesus, in the midst of the crowd, stops. Just as he said, let the children come. Jesus will let the lonely and the downcast and the needy and the downtrodden come. And so stopping, Jesus called on them and said, what do you want me to do for you? You see, he had just told them that, it, that God is a generous and lavish God. In the passage that we'll look at next week, he's going to show them what servanthood looks like. And here he gives them an example. That he doesn't reject those who call out to him, the needy, the downcast, the outcast, the, the humble, whoever it might be. He receives all who call upon him. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? He stops. He shows that the values of the kingdom of heaven are different than the values of this world. The values of this world is rush and get to the next thing, get it accomplished, get all the boxes checked. And Jesus, who has more to accomplish than anyone else in the history of the world, stops to minister to two needy men. And asks them a good question. What do you want me to do for you? Friends, we have a God that listens to our prayers. And is ready to respond. And is ready to act. And is ready to intervene. What do we want him to do? 
When we pray, what are we asking him to do? Do we know his promises? Do we know his word? Do we know his abilities? What are we asking him to do? Well, they knew what they wanted. Lord, let our eyes be opened. Recall what we saw earlier in Matthew, that Jesus has healed the blind. Remember the invocation passage that we read, which said, what will it look like when the Messiah comes? What will happen? And we saw that the first sign of the Messiah is that there will be the opening of eyes, of blind eyes. I'm going to reread Isaiah 35, or Jerry read it earlier. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The Messiah has come, and the proof is that the blind are receiving their sight. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and immediately recovered their sight. He brings them into a relationship with himself, and they follow him. While he is on the way to Jerusalem, while he is going to be the sin sacrifice for sinners, while he is going to be the fulfillment of God's plan, he stops and ministers to two needy men and says, what do you need from me? And they ask, and they receive. These men believed that the son of David could have compassion on them and heal them. And when they asked, he did. And the result is there were two more disciples. And in pity, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately recovered their sight and followed him. They're now healed physically, but I think the text makes it very clear, or at least certainly implies clearly they were healed spiritually. Why? Look at their reaction. They get up and they follow him. Jesus is not only to open physical eyes, he's able to open spiritual eyes. And he who calls us, come and follow me, as a command, expects a positive response. And they rise and they join in with the groups that are on their way up to Jerusalem, for the Son of David has compassion on those who come to him. And it is good for us to pray, Lord, open our eyes. Every morning as you approach the, the holy scriptures of God and as you open them, say, Lord, open our eyes that we might see the wondrous things of your law. As we're walking through life and as we're trying to please the Lord in all that we do, Lord, open our eyes to see what you would have us to do, where you would have us to go, what you would have us to say. We stumble through this world. And so we need the one who is the light of the world to shine the light in our path. So we pray, Lord, open our eyes that we might see Jesus as the son of David who opens eyes and who is the true solution to all of our needs. Christ is all. Did we not sing that earlier? And then we also see Jesus as the son of man who bears our sins and suffers in our place, lifts up the lowly that they might be right with God. So friends, as we have looked at these two short passages as we've looked at Jesus as the son of David looked at Jesus as the son of God he beckons you come see him come to him you know that's a daily thing for Christians yes we repent and believe at the moment that we believe and we're born again and we're transformed by the spirit of God but repentance and confession of sin 
and coming to Christ and asking to open our eyes is a daily experience for the Christian. And so we should be praying that every day, Lord, open our eyes. Now next week, if the Lord should will, we're going to get to Matthew 20 and begin studying from verse 20. Well, we'll see what servanthood looks like. We'll see what Jesus did as the ransom bearer, the ransom payer for sinners. But until then, what are some lessons we can take away from today? Well, because the Son of Man was delivered over for our sins, we will walk in the freedom of our forgiveness and holiness and gratitude. Grace, properly understood, empowers us to holiness. Grace never becomes an excuse for sinning. Secondly, because both Jew and Gentile delivered Jesus over, we will share the gospel with both Jew and Gentile, with all who the Lord brings our way, or those to whom we go, urging them to repent and believe. The gospel is for all, and we need to deliver it and make it available to all. Because Jesus was never in a hurry, we pray for God to help us to take time to help others and show them God's love. We do not have more to accomplish than Jesus did. And it might be that we're so busy because we have said yes to things that God never asked us to say yes to. He will always give us the time and the energy and the opportunity to do those things that he wants us to do. Fourthly, because the son of David can heal and help, we will cry out to him in our time of need. Remember that this week. It might happen on a Tuesday morning as you're on the road. It might happen Wednesday at noon as you get a phone call. It might happen Thursday evening as you check the thermometer. But you can cry out to him in your time of need as the son of David. And lastly, because we have seen Jesus do great things in our lives, we will gladly follow him as our Lord and as our Messiah. Will you this day see him as the son of David who has compassion and the son of man who saves us because of his passion? Let us pray. Father, it is indeed good for us to come face to face with our weakness and our sin so that we see what a beautiful Savior you are. It is good for us to hear again what Jesus went through on our behalf so that we will find ourselves refueled and refilled with the joy of your Holy Spirit because of gratitude of what you have done. It is good for us to hear that Jesus listens to the cries of people like us so that we can have hope that as we cry out, we not only have a hearing God, we have a God who is able to respond. And it is good for us to praise you for who you are and for all that you have done. May this week, Father, you guide us to turn to you to seek you, to proclaim you, to thank you, and to love you with all that we are because you're worthy of it all. In Jesus' name, amen.